Over the past few decades, technology has become big business. The fastest growing companies all have technology at their core, which is baked into our everyday lives. The landscape is dominated by a few outliers, and the race is on between the big four, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. One horse in that race which is gaining speed is Amazon. It's led by the mysterious and formidable Jeff Bezos. And according to one of the richest men in the world, Warren Buffett, we should start paying attention to him. Well, I mean that there's certain people that you you do not want to try and beat at their own game. And certainly Jeff Bezos would be number one. I mean, that'd be like me playing chess with Bobby Fischer, you know, 40 years ago to be all, all over on the first move. I mean, here was a guy that was a business genius and he's coming out with something big and the world his competitors, to a large extent, just sort of ignored it. I mean, they gave him a lead time. And now Amazon has Australia in their sights. We talked to Nick Hodges about whether Aussie retailers should be concerned. So if, when you say, you know, should businesses be worried or how do they compete, it depends on what that business is. If that business is putting a bunch of goods from disparate places together in a physical space without thinking much about the experience of being in that space or how you got to those products, then Amazon's gonna crush you. I think the threat that they do pose is the reason they, you know, they'll probably be a trillion dollar company and probably the first trillion dollar company, which is just the, the number of different arms that they have. And, you know, they're an e-commerce business, they're a distribution and logistics business, um, they're an advertising business, they're a, a cloud services business, they're an artificial intelligence business. You know, that's how you can, can definitely not compete against Amazon. And author of The Lessons School Forgot, Steve Sammartino, shares how this has snuck up on us all. The one thing that Amazon has that no other retailer has is a financial advantage where their shareholders are not expecting dividends. I mean, that's the core advantage. Amazon goes out and gives money back to itself, it invests in itself again and again and again. And all of the other retailers, certainly the legacy retailers, have fund managers and profitability and all of these things that they have to do and they can't reinvest at the same level that Amazon can. But if you're selling a product, homogeneous, at a price, you're already out of business and you just don't know it yet. That's, it's not if, it's when and who. So, there's no choice. And Steve Jones, founder of furniture marketplace House of Home, shares how Amazon's arrival will impact him. You've got these small stores all around our country that are closing their doors, and I'm sure if you added them up, um, it'd be in the thousands, possibly tens of thousands every, every year. That's tragedy, that's people's lives, it's people's families that don't have jobs, don't have businesses anymore. We are a curated marketplace of retailers that have amazing products that are relevant to the consumers who come and find us. There's no algorithms with us, we're not robots, we're people. And we're Australian people. And if Jeff Bezos wants to come and take my people, then he's better meet me behind the trailer park. <laughs> so I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm Tommy McCubbin, creative director, dad and podcaster. And this is Future Sandwich, Episode 12, Surviving Amazon. The year is 1994, the year of Forrest Gump, The Lion King, Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, and of course, Hot Stepper was on top of the charts. 
American hedge fund manager Jeff Bezos has just driven from New York to Seattle, writing a business plan for a company called Amazon. Here he is reminiscing in a speech to grads on what made that business plan so special. The, the wake-up call that led to starting Amazon.com was finding that web usage in the spring of 1994 was growing at 2,300% a year. And things just do not grow that fast. Uh, outside of, I guess, usually like petri dishes or something. I mean, it's a very, very unusual growth rate. And uh, you could tell anecdotally, even though there wasn't good uh, research on this at the time, that the baseline of web usage wasn't trivial. Uh, and so something with a non-trivial baseline growing at 2,300% a year uh, is, is, uh, is, is, is clearly going to be everywhere tomorrow. And so the question was, what kind of business plan would make sense in the context of that growth? And uh, I went through a whole bunch of different things and made a list of 20 different products looking for the first best product to sell online. Came up with books for a bunch of reasons, but primarily because books are very unusual in one respect, and that is that there are more of them than there are products of any other category. So there are literally millions of different books in print at any given time, and uh, computers are good at organizing such large selections of products, and, and uh, you could build something online that literally couldn't be built uh, any other way. You couldn't have a physical world bookstore or a paper catalog with millions of different books. Uh, and the primitive technology that was the web in 1994 clearly required that kind of uh, uh, characteristic for a business. It had to be something that could only be done in that way. So that's what led to books. So as Amazon sold more and more books, we saw institutional bookstore brands like Borders disappear. And since, he has built a conglomerate of companies that are driving extraordinary innovation, from hosting more internet than any other provider to pioneering space travel. We caught up with Steve Sammartino to talk about how it went from online bookstore to behemoth almost undetected. The one thing that Amazon has that no other retailer has is a financial advantage where their shareholders are not expecting dividends. I mean, that's the core advantage. Amazon goes out and gives money back to itself. It invests in itself again and again and again. And all of the other retailers, certainly the legacy retailers, have fund managers and profitability and all of these things that they have to do. And they can't reinvest at the same level that Amazon can. And that's what's afforded them for the last 20 years that they've been on the stock market, the ability to create digital wood chips. You know, when they solve their own problems, then they sell their own problems that they've solved to other people. You know, AWS, classic example. Um, it's, they're so much more than the world's biggest retail. They're actually just a, I think they're a logistics company and they're building the logistics first of the internet, then of warehousing with their robotics and now the logistics of the home with Alexa and so on. And because they don't have to give money back to the people who invested in them and they've said, well, what we're gonna do is you can, you can sell the share price, you can sell the future, but you can't sell our profit today. And it just resets the expectations of what they can do. And the toughest thing for everyone they compete with is that they don't have the same expectation from the people who own their stocks. So they're getting cheap equity. No one else is getting equity. No one else is getting capital that cheap. They've got the cheapest capital you can get. Zero interest. 
The profits we make, we get to put back in. We don't have to go out and buy capital, access capital. So that gives them an unfair financial advantage from day one. It's also what happens with a lot of startups as well. Venture capital is cheap capital. You can't get cheaper than that. I mean, it's not cheap for the founder, but it's cheap for the business. And so once you have that, you have an unfair advantage against others who need to grow, position themselves for the future, invest in new infrastructure, and deliver shareholder returns. Well, you kind of can't do both. So you're always going to have that advantage with retaining profits. And I reckon in the future we're going to see more companies, especially new ones, that don't actually give dividends, at least for a period of time, which means fund managers and others need to sell their positions to sell down to realise the profits that the companies have made. And certainly while we're moving to new platforms, that's what we'll see more of. It's a good hack. If you don't follow that strategy and you just focus on profits, the line of progress is going to remain flat. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what happens in times of great change, is that basically it's not really a digital revolution, it's an infrastructure reset. So we spoke before about we're building a metastructure now, which is ones and zeros that live on top of concrete and steel. Right? That's, that's what we're building. And so if you're investing in tomorrow, you, you can't, you have to keep reinvesting in the new infrastructure. When you build the new infrastructure, by default, you close out the old guy who was all about concrete and steel because you built the new infrastructure and they have to dance on your new platform. And if they don't, they lose. And the other thing that's different is we used to live in a make, buy and sell economy. Now we live in a platform economy where you make and sell within other people's platforms, whether it's digital or other products or supply. It's more of an, it's, it's kind of open source in a way. And the other players had vertical supply chains, and now you've got a horizontal supply chain. So when that new supply chain gets built on top with something like retail, it's in many areas, it's a winner-takes-all society. It might only be one or two players that, that sit there. You know, it's almost like the law of two always happens, but there'll be one winner. And the more open you are, the more chance you are of winning where you use other people's resources. It almost goes way back to the VHS, a VHS versus beta. You know, VHS won because it was open source and other people could manufacture on their, on their platform. Once upon a time, retail was a place where you got things that were, retailers were the maisons of the amazing. It was like the spice market. Someone brought this amazing product you couldn't find anywhere else. And wow, what have these retailers got? They've procured things from lands afar and this is amazing. And it was, it was the reason it existed was you just couldn't get it anywhere else. You went to that place. This wasn't an average market, it was a supermarket. It was a department store, it was a maison, it was... But now you can get that anywhere. And if you sell something that is available in a non-physical uh, retailer, if you're physical, you cannot win, you're out of business. The only way physical retailers can exist is, in the future, is ultra-convenience, where they become a delivery hub, or I can just quickly get the milk or whatever I need because I'm so close and I need it right now, like right now, you know, within minutes. Or it has to be something different that I cannot get elsewhere. Because if I can get it online, it will be cheaper. It's just basic economics. The economics of bricks and mortar mean you've got more cost, which flows onto the consumer, and if the product is homogeneous, I'm gonna get it online. And it sounds fanciful now to think that a drone will deliver your products, but it really will. Like drones have had 142 times price performance improvement in the last six years. So a drone today that's $1,000 was $142,000 six years ago. 
right? They're already JD, the world's biggest retailer, in, sorry, the Chinese's biggest retailer. They deliver 910 kilos by a drone to different distribution points. If you're selling a product in a bricks and mortar store that I can get online, they'll beat you. They'll be cheaper. You cannot compete. You have to make sure that it's entertaining, it's uh, co-creation, it's social facilitation. That's what retail's about. And that'll still exist because we need to get together, we need to aggregate. But if you're selling a product, homogeneous, at a price, you're already out of business and you just don't know it yet. That's, it's not if, it's when and who. So, there's no choice. And when Warren Buffett, the most successful investor of our time, opens his mouth, the market literally moves. So here is what he thinks about the man behind the company, Jeff Bezos. Berkshire is not going to out Bezos, Jeff Bezos. That is for sure. What, what did you mean by that? What were you talking about? Well, I mean that there's certain people that you, you do not want to try and beat at their own game. And certainly Jeff Bezos would be number one. I mean, that'd be like me playing chess with Bobby Fischer you know, 40 years ago. to be all, all over on the first move. Uh, Jeff, you know, he's just shown amazing talent in figuring out how to please customers and, uh, and, a, and in a very short time. And what's interesting to some extent about him, the same thing's interesting about Fred Smith of Federal Express. It isn't that they've had some breakthrough and, you know, found some molecule <laughs> this or that or, or come up with some, you know, incredible invention. They've taken fairly ordinary things. I mean, starting buying books and, and, you know, but Fred Smith took the airplane and the delivery truck and the postal service, but then he just put it together in a very imaginative way, you know, with the central hub and all that, and, and came up with a whole new industry out of components that were known to everybody. And in, in a sense, Bezos has done the same thing. Now he's building big distribution centers and employing the latest technology. But the Kindle came out of there, and there's some products, but overwhelmingly, He's taken things that you and I were buying before, and he's figured out a way to make us happier buying those products, either by fast delivery or prices or whatever it may be. And that's remarkable when you think about it. I mean, a lot of that comes down to just focusing on what the customer wants. It's all he thinks about is, is he, he wants the customer to have a smile on their face. And, and, and now that's been true of other retailers. I mean, that is not something that R.H. Macy didn't think, or Marshall Field, or Bernard Gimble, or all these people, but he knew how to do it, you know, in 1997 in a way that nobody else had come up with. And I'm sure his ideas even evolved as he was doing it. But he laid out his objectives in his first annual report, and you could just read them. I mean, his competitors could read them, and he has changed the world in a big way. When you talk about his game, I mean, it's, it's harder and harder to really identify what his game is. It's retailing, it's online retailing, but so much of Amazon's huge profits from the last uh, go-around came from AWS, from the cloud. And that's incredible because yeah. he, he developed that over a six or seven year period and everybody else sat and watched. And I mean, here was a guy that was a business genius and he's coming out with something big and the world his competitors, to a large extent, just sort of ignored him. I mean, they gave him a lead time, uh, which was very, very dramatic. I actually uh, sat next to him at a, at, uh, a birthday party for someone, and, and uh, he told me how surprised he was that, that he didn't get more reaction quicker. And so as the arrival of Amazon in Australia looms, Nick Hodges shares if there may be a chink in their armour. I, I, I don't think Amazon has a lot of weaknesses. 
um, I'll call, I, I, you know, I've got a, I've talked about this before and have written it down and hopefully people will hold it to me um, that, that I think Amazon will be the world's first $1 trillion company, um, which in saying that means that I think it has far more growth in it than, than Apple, uh, Google and Microsoft, um, which are the three companies that are currently ahead of it in terms of market cap. Uh, and uh, the basic fact is Amazon doesn't have a lot of weakness. So if we start at sort of the core of Amazon and work outwards, um, from a retail point of view, you know, Amazon isn't a retailer in the sense of creating an amazing experience. It's not even necessarily great in terms of curating. Um, it, it's great in terms of convenience. Uh, it's great in terms of getting products into people's hands. And so if, when you say, you know, should businesses be worried or how do they compete, it depends on what that business is. If that business is putting a bunch of goods from disparate places together in a physical space without thinking much about the experience of being in that space or how you got to those products, then Amazon's going to crush you. If your business is creating a beautiful space where people can shop, then you're fine. Uh, if, if your business is curating a very select and you know, very well-defined bunch of, of products and retailing them, your business is fine. Uh, if your business is creating products that people want to buy and that people love, your, 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 your business is fine. And in actual fact, in that case, get on Amazon. So the question is, is there a chink in their armour? Well, the, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, Amazon aren't good at, at, at physical spaces. They aren't good at curating in a way that algorithms can't curate. Um, and, 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 you know, despite some success with their bookstores uh, in the US, you know, they, they just don't want to be in that space. So that's great. You know, play in a space that they don't want to be. <laughs> that's one way to beat them. Um, but if you're creating products, then, uh, then nothing's bad about Amazon for you. You know, God, if you're creating, you know, a, a range of skincare products today, then, and God, there's a lot of people doing that. Um, then if you were doing that 20 years ago, the challenge of getting ranged in, in Coulter Woolies or in you know, a Priceline or a Sigma Pharmacy or, or whatever sort of back 20 years ago was phenomenally hard. Um, and, and now you don't have that problem. You range yourself in Amazon. So I don't think Amazon caused a massive threat from that perspective. Uh, and I think the threat that they do pose is the reason they, you know, they'll probably be a trillion dollar company and probably the first trillion dollar company, which is just the, the number of different arms that they have and, and sort of to a degree their anti-fragility. Um, things, bad things can happen in economies, bad things could happen in product categories. Um, think technological progress could happen slower or faster and, and no matter what sort of curveballs you throw in the next few years, Amazon um, will have upside on, on some lines of what they do and downside on other lines of what they do. So when you consider that, you know, they're an e-commerce business, they're a distribution and logistics business, um, they're an advertising business, they're a, a cloud services business, they're an artificial intelligence business, you know, that's how you can, can definitely not compete against Amazon. So what are some of the principles that they've applied to their business that have got them to this point in this incredibly strong position? 
Um, I'm probably not the Jeff Bezos expert to talk about that. Um, if uh, if you want a book to read on that, the Everything Store is is, is phenomenal. Um, but you know, Amazon has a Amazon is is a cutthroat place to work. Um, B they're very good at siloing the business into different businesses. Um, the the, the, the different parts of, of Amazon, you know, from selling physical goods to working on logistics to providing cloud services to doing artificial intelligence research um, to running physical stores, those, those different parts of the Amazon business are, are fundamentally separate things. And so in that sense, you know, Amazon is, as it adds more capability, it's becoming more of a conglomerate, you know, sort of akin to a Berkshire Hathaway sort of thing. Um, what they also do phenomenally well is 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 almost sort of dog fooding to a degree. I think there's a lot of myth around the amount of dog fooding that Amazon does, and you know the whole there's a great myth that Amazon Web Services was, you know, built out of the fact that when it came to Christmas, uh, Amazon's website had to scale up to this huge sort of capacity. So when it wasn't Christmas, they would sell off that extra capacity. It's a great story. I, it's it's not true uh, but it is true that you know the reason Amazon Web Services is such an amazing product is because of how much Amazon requires Amazon Web Services uh, and you know Ben Thompson talks about this idea of an Amazon tax that you know basically if you create a company using technology and using the internet today uh, you're probably paying an Amazon tax somewhere in your supply chain you're giving Amazon some money uh, and you know, increasingly they're starting to get into logistics. They've got aeroplanes now. They've, you know, there's there's just so many parts to, to Amazon. I think they'll probably have the first sort of usable and widely used um, artificial intelligence as a service uh, sort of product. So, yeah, no matter what you're starting these days, it's hard not to give some money to Amazon. To round out this story, it's important to get the perspective of a local company that is likely going to be impacted by Amazon's arrival. We caught up with Steve Jones, founder of furniture marketplace House of Home. House of Home, it's a good name. Uh, House of Home is the most relevant marketplace for the home. Uh, we get retailers from around the country to advertise all of their products to consumers wanting to find those products and buy it in the way that they want. It's a really cool platform and it doesn't exist anywhere in the world, so we're really proud of it. And you've been in market for... Been in market house for two years, and since that time, we've uh, we've just been working on some some real fundamentals of trying to run a marketplace, uh, which is getting the most relevant products from the most relevant uh, retailers, and the consumers are coming. So we're getting around three hundred thousand people a month coming to our site. We've got four hundred retailers and over a hundred thousand products. So we're doing a good job. Amazon is uh, it's quite the beast. I've got, I've got a positive and a negative perspective on Amazon. I'll start with the positive. I think Amazon's going to solve the, one of the most fundamental issues we have in this country, and that is one of logistics. I don't believe Amazon have worked out that we are, in fact, an island, which has got a really big desert in the middle and a road that goes north to south and east to west. But Amazon do know that they have a lot of money and I believe that they will throw a lot of that money into solving this logistical problem and work out a way to get products from Victoria to Perth very quickly and cheaply. Uh, and then they'll turn that into something that they've done with their web services business um, and then allow people to access that network. 
uh, and then solve that problem of delivery for all these other retailers and shippers out there. Um, because there are consumers over in Perth that want products from Sydney and Brisbane and Adelaide and they just can't get them because it's just too expensive. So I hope they've solved that problem. I have no doubt that they will fail multiple times and it'll take them three or four years. So in about five years time, we'll have a solution which will be terrific. So that's kind of the positive. The negative though, is what I'm more concerned about. And that is, when you look at what they've done in America and indeed in, in other countries, Amazon, in my opinion, destroy more businesses than they help. They certainly sell a lot of products, but they do it by squeezing the margins out of them and, uh, and or creating their own products. Uh, and therefore getting rid of the suppliers that stopped them in the first place. Um, there's more and more businesses that close every day as a result of Amazon, both small and large. I mean, Sears and Macy's in the US are two big examples that are closing store after store after store uh, as a direct result of Amazon coming and then creating their own white label products to rival them and they're able to ship them at a cheaper rate. Uh, but in Australia, uh, I, I think that the same will follow. So they're going to certainly drive additional sales for some retailers in the short term, but over the, the medium to long term, they're going to destroy more businesses than they create. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of hype out there around e-commerce, 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 when the reality is over the 12 months to March this year, we did around $320 billion worth of sales in retail. 300 of that was in-store, 20 of that was online. So 7% of all retail sales were made online, but that's the focus. That's the focus. Every single, every single article, every single media outlet talks about that. 93% of sales happen in store. Amazon only sell online. But 93% of our sales happen in store. And so these, Amazon are going to try and steal that. And I, I, I don't think they're going to get a large chunk of it, but it is going to impact uh, not only the, the, the retailers, but also the consumers that want to go in store, clearly. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's very similar metrics over in the United States as well as it is in the UK and, and other first world countries. So you're more marketing agency than you are marketplace. That'd be kind of... Yeah, it's, it's not lost on me that the fact that there is, we've got market and marketplace in the same, same word. So yes, we're, we're absolutely a, a sales and marketing organisation. We're trying to bolt on some auxiliary services to, to really help, on, help these retailers grow their business because no one's looking after these little guys out there. Um, we've got the, the sad reality where we have five retailers leave us every month because they close their doors. Now that's tragic. No one reports that in the media because it's not a, not a story. Everyone reports Topshop closing or um, the Officeworks IPO not going ahead because it's a big ticket item. Um, but you've got these small stores all around our country that are closing their doors and I'm sure if you added them up um, it would be in the thousands, possibly tens of thousands every, every year. That's tragedy. That's people's lives. It's people's families that don't have jobs, don't have businesses anymore. We are a curated marketplace of retailers that have amazing products that are relevant to the consumers who come and find us. There's no algorithms with us, we're not robots, we're people. And we're Australian people. And if Jeff Bezos wants to come and take my people, he's better meet me behind the trailer park. <laughs> so I'm ready to go. So however much dust Amazon kick up when they arrive, they will change retail in this country. And there'll be massive benefits for us as punters. Delivery of anything in an hour, AI-driven recommendations of things we want before we even know we want them, and guarantees of the best possible price. 
but there's something missing from this. There's a distinct lack of human touch in this experience, a level of craft and story that Amazon machines cannot give us. So when it comes down to how to survive in the age of Amazon, businesses need to be the opposite of an algorithm. They need to fight for face-to-face and old-school service. That will always be in demand. This has been Future Sandwich, episode 12, Surviving Amazon. So it's the beginning of a new season, I suppose you'd call it, and you can expect an episode a month for the rest of 2017. And our team has grown. I'd like to introduce Andre, Future Sandwich's head writer, researcher and producer. And to our guest, Nick Hodges, you can follow Nick at Nick Hodges and subscribe to his newsletter at Blonde3. And of course, Steve Sammartino has just written The Lesson School Forgot. It has become my personal manifesto, this book, and you should check it out at stevesamartino.com. And I spoke with Samma about what's inside. The first thing school forgot to tell us is that it wasn't for us, it was for them. You might be wondering who they are. They are the industrialists who needed compliant industrial factory workers. Problem is, it's obsolete. The thing we need now is to create our own future because I think we're going to have companies with exactly zero employees. So the question then is, not what job can you get, but what value can you make for the marketplace? Subscribe to the Future Sandwich email and I'll pick someone at random to win a copy of both The Great Fragmentation and his new book, The Lesson School Forgot. Also, thanks to Steve Jones, founder of The House of Home. Check out his site at houseofhome.com.au. And you can check out the original Warren Buffett interview in the show notes at futuresandwich.com. Thanks again for listening and stay up to date on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. See you next time.